The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about meningitis, legal issues surrounding parents and standards of care, and a new book about science blogging. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and I'm here with Nick Little, the Center for Inquiries Vice President and General Counsel. Nick oversees the Center's litigation with a dual focus on protecting the separation of church and state, as well as seeking to ensure that true science, not pseudoscience or invented facts, are used to justify public policy. Great to have you back, sir. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay, there's a story that's been in the news recently about a toddler uh, here in Alberta, actually, who died of meningitis. So uh, a jury just found the parents guilty of failing to provide him with the necessaries of life. So Mick, could you walk us through that entire story? Yeah, uh, certainly. It's it, it's obviously a very disturbing and upsetting story in, in many ways. Um the child was a 19-month-old boy uh, named Ezekiel Stephan. Uh, Ezekiel was the son of um, his parents were David and Colette Stephan. Um, and back in 2012, in March of 2012, Ezekiel got sick. Um, and Ezekiel's parents are very vocal in the fact that they don't believe in modern science-based medicine. Uh, according to the parents, their belief was that Ezekiel had the flu or possibly had croup, you know, standard childhood diseases. And over the next two and a half weeks, uh, the parents treated Ezekiel. And I'm, I'm not even sure I should be using a word like treating in this case because they, they gave him a series of, uh, of products, including, Hot peppers, garlic, onions, horseradish, uh, horseradish, and a product from a naturopathic uh, doctor. And again, I'm not really sure I should be using the term doctor there for a naturopath. Um, and that product was, uh, they described it as something which was aimed to boost uh, Ezekiel's immune system. And so this is what they treated their child with. Over these two and a half weeks, the, the child didn't get better. In fact, the child got worse. And eventually, after two and a half weeks, Ezekiel stopped breathing. And only at that point, once uh, Ezekiel stopped breathing, did the parents think it was a sensible idea to call a hospital, to call a doctor. So the emergency services arrived. Ezekiel was taken to a hospital where he was diagnosed with bacterial meningitis. By the time that the medical professionals arrived, uh, the autopsy discovered that Ezekiel had already suffered from heart failure and brain damage. Ezekiel was given the best care possible at this point, um, but by March the 18th, uh, he was declared brain dead. He was taken off life support and uh, obviously died at that point. So the parents, David and Colette Stephan, were then taken to court. Uh, they were charged under Section 215 of the Canadian Criminal Code, which, as you mentioned, um, criminalizes failing to provide the necessaries of life to a child. Parents were convicted recently, and we're currently waiting for the sentence to be brought down against them. 
So now let's let's give you know a horrible story, even some more backstory. Now throughout this two and a half weeks, they were told first by a friend who was a nurse that it could be meningitis, and then uh, on the day of his death, uh, they were told by a naturopath to go to the hospital because it sounded like meningitis. Correct? Yes. They didn't go to a doctor to get a diagnosis. However, they have a close family friend who, uh, she's a registered nurse, lives close to them. And this nurse testified in the trial that she told the mother, Colette Stephan, that the, uh, the boy probably had meningitis and that it was essential that they take him to a hospital because of the dangers involved in meningitis. And then at a later date, um, they were again told this time by the naturopath that, uh, meningitis needed to be treated in a hospital and, uh, that they should take him to, they should take him to a hospital. And, and once again, they didn't take him until he stopped breathing. They didn't call the authorities. By that stage, everything was far too late and, uh, there was nothing that could be done. And then, and the child was put onto life support and, and died. <laughs> And we should add that on the day they took him to the naturopath, uh, Ezekiel was so stiff that he had to be placed on a mattress in the family truck instead of in a baby seat. It, the the details of the story are, are just sickening when you when you get down to that level. That any parent, and I'm a parent myself, um, that any parent can look at their child in that situation and believe that. Oh, what's the best thing we can do here? I know I'm going to give my child horseradish at this point. Um, it, it, it would be funny if it wasn't so utterly, utterly tragic that involved the death of a 19 month old. All right. Some more background. Uh, the father, Steve, uh, David Stephen, uh, he was a vice president of True Hope Nutritional Support Incorporated, uh, a natural remedies company. Uh, and founded by his father, actually, Anthony Stephen. Can you tell us a bit about that company? Yeah. Um, when you go to the website of uh, True Hope, uh, you you see what it is. I mean, they, they put out a product they're most famous for. It's called EM Power Plus. It's a, it's a blend of uh, vitamins and minerals and, of course, all natural products um, that they will advertise out there and and like any pseudoscientific um alternative medicine company they will make outlandish claims and one of the ways you can always tell old med products in this is that they're designed to treat an incredibly broad range of um of conditions so this this vitamin and mineral product and and again you go to the website and they they describe this new method of uh, processing minerals such as that they can be more easily absorbed into the body. And, and the words sound very scientific. But when you look into a detail, the words actually mean nothing. But what is this, uh, this product, EM Power Plus? According to them, what can it do? Well, the website describes the company as the path to natural health that they are revolutionizing mind and body health. Um, this product they listed as treating ADD, um, ADHD, that it can also treat anxiety, it can treat autism, it can treat bipolar disorder, it can treat depression, 
it can treat fatigue, it can treat stress. It, it, it covers this entirely broad spectrum, and it doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. Anything, any benefits that come from this come solely from placebo effects on it. And there's been back and forth on on this with with many people, with the Canadian government authorities. And, and honestly, what True Hope tends to be most known for in this is if you say anything bad about them, if you're a writer who who says their product doesn't work, they try and sue you. All right. So that's some awful backstory. So what what are then the legal requirements to care for an ill child? That is a very, very broad question. Um, and so, of course, it's going to get a very broad answer from me. You know what us lawyers are like <laughs> on that. Right. Let's let's take a, a quick step backwards. And, and look at what duties do we have generally to other people in the world. As an individual, under the, the legal system, generally we have a duty not to harm other people. But we have less of a duty to actively help people. That duty to actively help people only exists in specific circumstances. It has to be triggered by uh, something in the law. So if, for example, you're walking your dog and you're walking beside a canal and you see a person in there in the canal flailing around drowning, it's very unlikely that you have a legal duty to do anything to help them. You know, you can just walk on by as the person drowning. Now, whether that makes you a terrible human being, if you do that, is a different question. But legally, it's unlikely you have um, a particular duty to help them. However, if you're walking down beside that canal and push somebody into it, or if, on the other hand, if you're employed as a lifeguard on that canal, then you have specifically created a duty to be helping somebody in that situation. So that's, that's the general law. What happens when we come to children? Children are a very special case because they can't generally help themselves. So under the law, we have a particular duty to, in, to ensure a degree of safety for our children. Now, that degree of safety in Canadian law is, uh, is specifically codified in the, in the federal criminal code. As I mentioned earlier, that's section 215. What Section 215 says in its first part is it sets up this legal duty to provide the necessaries of life, and obviously exactly what falls under the necessaries of life is, is going to be what's a dispute. Right. Um, so to provide the necessaries of life for anyone who is under 16 years old, any child of yours who's under 16 years old, to your spouse or your common-law partner, or to anyone under your charge who is incapable of doing it, for themselves. There's no doubt that that covers a 19-month-old toddler would, would fall under that. The essential, what the law is saying at this point is if the parents don't provide this degree of care, these uh, necessaries of life, nobody else is going to do it. Section 2 of um, the, the law then turns around and makes it a criminal offense not to provide these necessaries of life. In the situation where the failure to perform that duty endangers the life or causes or is likely to cause the health of that person to be endangered permanently. Um, it, so essentially, it, it has to reach a certain level. 
we're not going to say that, you know, not taking your child to see the latest um, Marvel superhero movie the day it comes out is 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 going to endanger them permanently. It it only deals with with the high level incidents here. So then, what exactly would cause the police to charge a parent in cases like this? <laughs> Again, um, it's going to very much depend. Um, I, I wish there was a better answer for you on that, but these cases are incredibly fact specific. Um, and, and they're very context specific as well. Right. As a general answer, the police aren't going to get involved unless there is a death or a very serious harm or the likelihood of one of those two things. It's not just going to be a minor situation. Now, what we're looking for then in a situation like this is something egregious. Um, generally speaking, the law and the and the government and society, we, we trust parents to make the right choice and we give them a very large amount of leeway in that. But then other factors are going to kick in. One of the things um, is the age of the child and their ability to voice their own decision. You had another case up in Canada recently of an 11-year-old girl with leukemia who um, wanted uh, first people's treatment uh, rather than uh, chemotherapy on it. With a 19-month-old, there's no question that the 19-month-old cannot make that decision as to treatment. With a with a fifteen year old, although they're still under the age of sixteen, there we're far more likely to say, "Well, does that fifteen year old have any input into how they're treated?" When it was an eleven year old with leukemia, you're right on the borderline. Do we do we trust what an eleven year old says on that? So we'll look at the age of the child. We'll look at their ability to voice their own decision. We'll also look. The police will also look at exactly what it was the parents did. And what did they know in this situation? We'll look at, did they make a genuine mistake? Here, did they honestly believe that this child had the flu? And again, you mentioned that the child was was carried in on a board because the child was so stiff that the, that they couldn't be put into a, into a child seat. That, to me, would suggest... It certainly worries me that any parent could turn around and think, oh, that's just a mild case of the flu. So police will look at, uh, are the parents being pig-headed? Um, are they using their child to make some kind of point? So if, if we look at this case and uh, why I think the police acted here, you've got multiple factors. The first is the child died of what was a curable disease. There's no doubt that, uh, that um, doctors can cure um, meningitis they can they can cure this kind of meningitis and the child just wasn't given the necessary treatment to live a second factor that i think it was very important is the length of time that the child was sick um this child was sick for two and a half weeks and intensely sick during that period and the parents had multiple choices to seek real medical care and they didn't Third factor was the, was the nurse, the friend who's a nurse. The parents were told by a medical professional to go to the hospital, and they didn't do it. Fourth factor was their naturopath. Their own naturopath, someone they trusted, told them to go to the hospital, told them that meningitis needed to be treated that way, and they still didn't do this. 
what did the parents do? The parents waited until the child stopped breathing. And what that's saying to the police is they waited too, too long, too late. And a final factor of, I, I believe, why they were charged uh, in the way they were is the age of the parents. They are, I believe, 34 and 32 years old. They are definitely young enough to have more children and a court that they already have two more children. They can have more children, and I believe the legal system looks at it and says, we need to stop this happening again in the future. Now, I assume that, that these are the same kind of things, then, that a jury would look at. Absolutely. Um, a jury will look at things in the way that a prosecutor presents the case to the jury. The prosecutor's going to frame the case. I haven't read the transcript of the trial, but I cannot imagine these were not the factors that the prosecutor was bringing right to the forefront of this. And if you're a juror, you're going to be looking, sitting there and placing yourself into the position of the parent. And what you are going to be, be thinking as a juror, and, and most of the jurors will probably have children themselves, they're going to be trying to put themselves into the shoes of the parent and think, were the parents' actions reasonable at this point? Okay, this parent has different beliefs to me, but did they go too far in this case? And I think the jurors realized that the parents just went way beyond a simple non-belief in modern medicine to the level of child endangerment and child endangerment such that the, the child died. This is Science for the People, and today I'm talking to Nick Little, the Center for Inquiry's Vice President and General Counsel. And we're discussing the legal requirements around providing medical care to ill children and the consequences when you don't. So the parents uh, in this story haven't been sentenced yet. Uh, and just a few weeks ago, the father, David Stephen, uh, posted a letter on Facebook. And so I had a bit of a, an emotional response to this, so I am just going to read it out loud. Dear Jury, I deeply love each one of you and appreciate the tremendous sacrifice that you've made over the last eight weeks. I only wish that you could have seen how you were being played by the Crown's deception, drama, and trickery that not only led to our key witnesses being muzzled, but has now led to a dangerous precedent being set in Canada. The floodgates have now been opened, and if we do not fall in line with parenting, as seen by the government, we all stand in risk of criminal prosecution. Remember that the Crown Prosecutor's closing remarks were to combat the fact that the ill-equipped ambulance resulted in Ezekiel's brain death. She communicated that this was not about him dying, but rather about whether or not his life was endangered at any point due to our actions. How many parents have lost children for various reasons, all of which could have been concluded that the child's life was endangered and that the parent should have been able to foresee it? Whether medical attention is sought or not, and your child lives, it is of no consequence. It is only about whether or not it can be proven that at some point your child's life was endangered, and if so, you may find yourself in the same boat as us. The floodgates now have been opened, and my main concern is no longer for Colette and I, but rather for Canadians as a whole. May heaven help us all. So what do you think of that, Nick? Well, first, I'm going to give you my personal view as a parent on that. That letter indicates and displays a despicable sense of entitlement on the part of a man who, through his own stupidity, and through his own pig-headedness, killed his 19-month-old son. 
it's it's a horrendous view of children as a possession of their parents. But you didn't invite me on to give my opinion as a parent on things. You invited me to give my opinion as a lawyer. Um, as a lawyer, that entire letter is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of, of the law. As parents, we're custodians of the rights of our child. Those rights are still the property of the child. Now, we as parents get an incredibly large amount of leeway on this, and we can go back and forth, and I'd agree we probably get too much leeway at times. But in the end, we come back under the law to expecting that that guardianship of rights is exercised in a responsible way. We have standards of care. We have them in the medical world. There are basic levels which society says that if you fall below, you failed in your responsibility as a parent and as a guardian. So let's let's take an example for a moment that shows the ridiculous nature of the legal argument here. Let's say a parent is giving his two-year-old son a loaded gun with a hair trigger to play with. If you follow the, the theory put forward in this argument, in this letter, if you follow that, what it argues is that if the child doesn't actually manage to set the gun off, or if the child does set the gun off and the bullet doesn't hit anybody and lodges itself in the wall, it's kind of a no harm, no foul situation. And that's an idiotic concept. A parent who gives that kind of toy, a loaded handgun to a child should and is liable to prosecution for child endangerment, regardless of the outcome of the situation. Of course, if the child does actually kill himself or kill somebody else, the results are more tragic. But blind luck, whether it's that child not shooting somebody or a child by complete chance fighting off a meningitis infection, doesn't alter whether the parent has breached the duty of care. Now, in practicality, those things do matter. We obviously, we often won't find out if our neighbor's two-year-old plays with a loaded gun, if we don't hear the gunshot, or we don't see a tiny coffin being removed from the house. But if you did find out that that's what the parent did, that gave his two-year-old a loaded handgun to play with, you wouldn't let your child play over at that house just because the parent told you, well, nothing bad has happened yet. The aim of the law is to prevent harm to the child. It isn't solely to punish people once that harm has been done. Parenting's a really tough job. We all know that. Every parent knows how hard a job it is. And there are incredibly large risks involved. We do give parents a large amount of leeway. But what we do is we set a baseline below which a parent cannot go without violating the law. And this parent, let's remember, was these parents were told their child very likely had meningitis, and were told their child needed to be hospitalized immediately. They were told that by a medical professional, and they were told that by the unqualified quack naturopath that they trusted. And then they refused to do that. And you can't just explain that away with a hand wave and a letter saying, you're just mad that the kid died in the end. So we've got, we've got a fear of the government controlling how we raise our children. And in, in many circumstances, that fear makes a lot of sense. But we've always accepted there are decisions we don't let parents make for children. We don't let parents send children down the coal mines or up chimneys, even if they believe that will build their character. We don't let a parent to de decide that an eight-year-old child is ready to have sex just because the parent thinks that society is too repressed about sexual choices. 
there are these areas we don't say the parent gets to choose. And we've set that bar pretty low. And these parents, in their actions that resulted in the death of their child, they failed even to meet the low bar that we set. So again, now they haven't been sentenced yet. So uh, I, I believe they're they're due back in court in June. So could Mr. Stephen writing that letter affect their sentencing? Well, I, I, I'm far from an expert on Canadian sentencing. Um, I don't know if it will affect it. It could affect it. Um, speculating, I doubt that it will. But if it does, I think it's likely to increase any sentence. It shows this sense of entitlement that's just staggering. These parents still, still view them them as the persecuted people in this. They view themselves as the victim. And, and the level of chutzpah in, that, in a situation where there is a dead 19-month-old child a child whose last few weeks were filled with terror and agony because of his parents' neglect. For the parents to portray themselves as the victim is not going to come across well to, to any court. It shows an utter lack of remorse and it shows a victimization complex. Uh, and any court, in my mind, will look at it and, and be worried that the parents are going to do the same thing again, whether it's with their existing children or any future children they have. That's got to create a worry for the court. And if it has any impact, my guess would be it would be to increase the sentence. Now, this whole story is all over the uh, natural news blogs uh, as an example of how people who use non-medicinal treatments are being persecuted. And I find that very odd because I feel like this is possibly the worst example to showcase. Like even the naturopath sent them to the hospital, right? Absolutely. It. The, the the internet, as as you know, as I know, as anybody who goes anywhere near the internet goes, is a very strange and often a very troubling place. There's people out there who are firmly convinced that anything the government does is automatically evil. Uh, these people who believe that drugs exist to keep us sick, to make profits for big pharma, whatever big pharma is. I'm, I'm sure you're told frequently you're a shill for big pharma. I get told this. I haven't yet received any paychecks from Big Pharma, but I, I assume that's just the mail is bad. These are the people who believe that chemicals, chemicals are harmful. Um, and they view people like the uh, Stevens as heroes. Uh, they see them as martyrs to a big state view. Yet what they forget is they forget those small coffins and they, they forget the undersized wheelchairs occupied by the people who are the true victims of alternative medicine. And these are, these are the true victims. It's the children who are never given a choice as to whether they wanted medicine that worked or not. And no, no crazy internet um, conspiracy theory blog can alter the fact that children are dying as a result of this. Well, there's uh, there's another aspect of the story that we should probably mention. The the College of Naturopathic Doctors of Alberta is investigating the naturopath involved in this story. Uh, the investigation was requested by other naturopaths who were concerned about the standard of care that she provided, uh, because apparently meningitis was discussed and medical assistance was suggested, but she also gave them echinacea to treat him at that point. Yes, uh, that's what the naturopath testified to uh according uh, in the in the court trial and let's remember the naturopath had every incentive to reduce their own involvement in this 
Uh, yeah, the the meningitis was discussed apparently, and the naturopath testified that she told she told her assistant who was talking to the parents on the phone to tell them that if, if it's meningitis, take the child to the hospital immediately. But yes, yeah, still gave them this uh, tincture of uh, echinus. I sorry, I can't even pronounce uh, the 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 tincture from a plant. And and this again, it's so typical of alternative medicine. We have a plant that has it, there's been no scientific proof that this this does anything. Yet naturopaths, on the one hand, say this cures a cold. On the other hand, they say this cures cancer. It's it's another of their panacea claims that uh, just doesn't hold up. And yes, I believe the naturopath is being investigated as a result. So might that result in charges to the naturopath? The criminal charges, I doubt it. Um, alternative medicine, naturopaths, uh, it's an incredibly loosely regulated area. If I was defending this naturopath, which it's very unlikely anybody would hire me to defend a naturopath, but if I was defending it, my argument would be that the the natural tincture that I provided was to deal with the symptoms of a cold. And that I did tell the uh, the parent that my client did tell the parent to have the child check for meningitis, and so if they didn't, that's their fault. I don't know how the governing body works. The governing body of what is it? Naturopaths, Reiki healers, moon howlers, assorted charlatans, charlatans, whatever. However, they decide to deal with it is up to them, and I I don't know their code of conduct. I would hope this falls foul of their code of conduct, but you just never know. All right. So this is unfortunately not the only case like this. Uh, according to an article that I read on CBC, uh, parents of two other children who died in Alberta currently face the same charges. There's a seven-year-old who died after his mother tried to treat his strep infection with holistic remedies. And there's a 14-month-old who died of a staph infection complicated by malnutrition. Uh, his parents were Seventh-day Adventists who followed a strict diet based on extreme interpretation of the religion. So are are there more of these stories out there than we realize? I I believe so. I I'm absolutely certain they there are. Um there's unvaccinated children who are suffering long-term harm from diseases that can be prevented so easily. There's children who uh grow up to become deaf adults because their parents use homeopathic remedies to treat their ear infections. There's there's the sickening cases of mentally ill children who are beaten to death as part of exorcisms by their parents to cast out the demons they believe that are making this the child misbehave. The stories that we actually get to see are just the tip of the iceberg. Let's remember who the parents are in these situations, and they come from two disparate groups. On the one hand, um, they're the the, the parents from the religious right who rely on faith healing. On the other hand, there's the parents from the anti-technology left who look to natural remedies. And these people in very real ways, they live largely off the grid. They very often homeschool their children. And they live and socialize in communities, both in the real world and online. They live in echo chamber communities. When a tragic situation like these occur, the letters and the comments show it's brought round time and time again to being the fault of the government, the fault of Big Pharma and not the parents. 
So we're just not made aware of the full extent of these sad situations because we, we just don't see them all. But I think you have to be very naive to think that we know anywhere close to all of the, the situations that happen. Well, this is horribly depressing. Is there anything else you'd like to leave people with, Nick? Yeah, um, there would be. It, I, I really want people to remember that their children aren't their, aren't their property. You take care of your children, you don't own them. And, and if you're in doubt, if your child is sick, go to a pediatrician. Pediatricians are good people. They're not pawns of some big pharma conspiracy. Not everything in this world is a conspiracy. And I want to I want to tell people who are worried about modern medicine to go to an old cemetery. Go to a cemetery from the days before vaccines, before modern antibiotics and medicine, and just take a walk around and look at the headstones. Look at the number of children who died in their infancy, often without even having the chance to be given a name. And what we should be grateful for is now when our children are sick, most of the time we can cure them. That, that's what I'd like to leave people with. Nick, as always, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely my pleasure. And we've linked to Nick Little on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, we have a short panel on meningitis, what it is and how you can avoid it. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking about meningitis with researchers Kenny Diallo, Charlene Rodriguez, and Martin Maiden. Uh, now, there's an area in Africa known as the African Meningitis Belt, uh, where there seems to be a higher rate of meningitis than there is in other parts of the world. Uh, so, Kenny, this is where you are, I believe? Yes. So, I am in Mali, which is one of the country of the African Meningitis Belt. So this region is a sub-Saharan region, um, which is uh, basically going from east to west, from Ethiopia to Senegal, and where we have uh, up to 100 or 100 to 800 cases per 100,000 people, um, cases of meningitis every, uh, well, when there is epidemics, should I say. So why exactly are, are there epidemics there? What makes Mali so different or that area so different? I think a lot of uh, us are still um, struggling with the answer to it. There's been some studies um, which um, Martin and I have been part of, studying the carriage of uh, melancholical uh, bacteria in that region. And we find that it's lower than what we will find in other uh, in westernized countries. So that might be one uh, reason. People are and people are getting less infected by the bacteria so have less immunity to it. The other reason is also the climate. So um, meningitis is seasonal in uh, the African meningitis belt. So we see a peak um, from June uh, from December to June every year. So and if this goes with a very harsh um, climate. Uh, very windy, very hot, 
and it's believed that uh, it may affect the, the 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 back of the throat and then uh, favorize any infections. So I don't know if Martin wants to add anything. Yes, the, it's, it is. The, the, there's probably there's a whole raft of reasons why the meningitis belt is different from. Uh, for example, Europe or North America, um, but as Canny says, you have these seasonal uh, weather. Um, the meningitis belt goes along a, a line of uh, a latitude, so it goes with climate and with weather. It's seasonal, um, and different meningococcal bacteria seem to cause the disease there. So there's something about this harmattan, this cold and very dry and windy and dusty period that makes people more prone to having meningococcal disease, and you get these very large epidemics, uh, which are unprecedented really in many other countries. So then what efforts are actually being made there to combat meningitis? Um, so one of the problems is the detection. So basically the efforts are going toward uh, improving the diagnostic and also improving the vaccines available to target bacteria that are being seen in the region. So we had a very successful uh, vaccine campaign against Serial Group A in, started, that started in 2010. And uh, this new vaccine has really uh, revolutionized uh, meningitis warranty because we had very, very large epidemic of group A that we don't see anymore. Um, but obviously, um, we, we left, well, we are not seeing group A meningitis anymore, but we are starting to see other bacteria, other serogroups um, starting to cause more disease. So really the effort is on finding a vaccine that would, um, be against all the serogroups so that we can stop seeing those uh, large epidemics. Then what might we see in the future in the in the meningitis belt? From since 2010, the level of uh, meningitis caused by serogroup A has decreased. Now, um, last year we had an epidemic of serogroup C, and this year again we see a lot of cases of serogroup C. So I think... Um, when we get a vaccine that is very efficient against the most pro- predominant serogroups, we can start seeing a decrease in the cases of meningitis. Did anyone want to add anything else to that? Yes, I mean, the, 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 most of the forms of meningitis that we know cause a big problem in the meningitis belt, which excludes B, which is rarely seen there, we've, we have the potential to make good vaccines too. So we, we, we have the potential to see the end of epidemic mening, uh, meningococcal disease in Africa and indeed elsewhere of those caused by all of these serogroups except B. So th- there's always a worry about what will happen with serogroup B when we don't have a vaccine against the actual serogroup B capsule it, the coat itself for reasons I said earlier and so you know it's always very difficult to know what's going in the future but uh, that is remains a potential risk until we have a vaccine that really solidly covers all or the majority of meningococci that have the group B capsule. And with vaccines I was just going to add I'm not sure if it's necessarily in direct answer to your question but in vaccines in the meningitis belt or in other developing countries there's always the other limitations, not only do we have to get the science of the vaccine correct to be able to protect against all the different types of, in this case, meningococcal disease, but it has to be affordable, it has to be a stable vaccine that can be transported in high temperatures and maintain the vaccine cold chain. 
So there's lots of other limitations or, or things to consider when making vaccines uh, to be used in developing countries. So as researchers and, and clinicians, uh, is there anything else you want to leave people with? Sort of anything else that you think people really need to understand or know about meningitis? So one of the key things is that the risk of meningitis hasn't gone away uh, and one needs to be on their guard. And I think maybe Charlene might have a few pointers for that as a clinician. So as a clinician, we see parents and I see other doctors and myself included who are still scared by seeing children with meningococcal disease because, as Martin said earlier, it is a severe disease that can progress very quickly. And I suppose the message to parents, to people who are worried about meningitis in people they know is that there's no harm in in going to see a doctor to presenting soon to presenting early if you're concerned about yourself or your child or a friend if they have these symptoms that we described or if they're just not well because the key to effectively treating bacterial meningitis or meningococcal disease is to intervene early get the right diagnosis and to treat as soon as you can to try and prevent the long-term consequences or you know death from these diseases um, and I was just going to add that this is uh, really true also for the African meningitis belt, where we often uh, see the children, well, the doctors often see the children when it's too late. So it's important to educate the mothers, the, 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 the families on the, on the first um, symptoms so that they can come to the nearest doctor as soon as possible so we can try and and, and detect whether they have meningitis or not. Because um, when you come to the hospital um, many or few hours late, then sometimes it's too late. Yep, and I would reiterate that as a clinician. Martin? Yes, so um, we've seen in my career, we've seen a marvellous progress against the reduction of meningococcal disease. We really, as I say, can see uh, there's an end of Group A epidemics in Africa. Uh, we've abolished serogroup C in UK and many other countries. Uh, indeed, the rates of meningococcal disease have gone down. Um, but as I said earlier, we must, we, 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 we've still got to go that last, the extra mile to finish the race to combat this disease absolutely permanently. And, and there's still a need to, to produce better, uh, vaccines against the B, group B meningococcus that will enable us to finally, uh, uh, close the history book on this dreadful infection. Thanks, everyone, for being here, especially you, Kenny. That, that was tragic to try and get you on the line. I appreciate all the effort. <laughs> heroic, heroic. <laughs> and we've linked to all of our panelists on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Up next, I'll be back to talk with Christy Wilcox about the new book, Science Blogging, The Essential Guide. Stay tuned. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Christy Wilcox, a biologist and science writer. She has blogged about science since 2008 and currently writes Science Sushi for Discover Magazine and tweets as Nerdy Christy. She is one of the editors and contributor to the new book, Science Blogging, The Essential Guide. Christy, welcome to Science for the People. 
Glad to be here. So before we get into the book specifically, um, I think maybe some of our listeners haven't really thought about this before, but what is the difference between science journalism and science blogging? Well, the main difference between science journalism and science blogging is that blogs or blogging refers to the medium. So it just talks, it's like saying newspaper or magazine, whereas journalism is more of the practice. So you could be a conducting science journalism over a science blog, or you could be conducting science journalism and, and writing for a magazine or a newspaper. Why does science blogging need an essential guide? It's an incredible tool that many people are a little bit afraid to, to use or to use thoroughly, particularly those who are interested in communicating science, because science often gets messy with politics and a lot of the sort of pushback that we, we see as of late. And so I think blogs are an amazing and incredibly diverse tool that we can use to communicate science from any angle. But there's been less of a, a concentrated effort to explain how to for those who might be interested. It definitely seems like blogging historically has been, whether science or for other topics, something that has kind of evolved a bit organically and that people have just sort of figured out on their own. And yes, and that's, and that's great at first. But I think like any sort of writing, I mean, we all need training. We all had to be trained how to write essays or how to write papers if you're a scientist or how to write news articles if you're a journalist or a writer. And so, I mean, I think what this book really does well is bring together people from all different walks of life to give advice on how to use blogs for anything you could possibly want to use them for related to science communication. It's interesting, too, because you guys don't just do like a super basic how to for someone who's never blogged before. There's really kind of different steps and different levels. It, it, I feel like it's something that anybody who is at any stage in a science communication career could probably really benefit from. Yeah, that's exactly what we were going for. I mean, there's certainly some beginner, you know, how to set up a blog or or how to run comment sections or some of that. But there's also, well, even some of that, like the comment sections chapter could be applied to people who've been blogging for a while sort of on their own and just haven't really had the time or the bothered to stop and think about what they're doing and whether or not they could improve upon it. So you've been doing science blogging for quite a long time. And uh, how has science blogging changed since you started blogging? What are some of the big changes you've noticed? What I've seen change in terms of science blogging is just that it's become so much more respected and popular. So I think there's both a shift from saying, oh, these are just some, you know, people in their pajamas typing away at a keyboard to, to these are scientists, these are journalists, these are, these are real professionals communicating with the internet audience. Um, and that's, that's been the biggest shift, which started to occur before I started blogging, but really has, has, I think, hit its stride. <laughs> I think there are a lot of big news sources now that have their own blog sections. And, and I know from my standpoint, oftentimes when I click to a major science section or a major science blog, I don't often sort of differentiate from what is a blog versus what is, I guess, like a featured article. Um, so for me, it's been really nice to see some of those uh, great bloggers that I've been reading for a long time and their science columns kind of moving into some of those big uh, mainstream publishing places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, what's great about a science blog is that it really is 
dependent upon the writer, essentially, as to what it is. So a science blog could be basically like a newspaper column if it's written by a newspaper columnist. And, and that's, that's what we see with people like Carl Zimmer or Ed Young, who are well-respected journalists and, and known for their good writing in other places, but also have a blog. And their blog writing is no different from the writing that they do for their uh, magazines and articles in terms of quality or fact-checking. It's also kind of interesting that blogs allow a lot of science writers to kind of get into a niche in a way that I don't know that we used to see before blogging. Uh, there were sort of science writers that covered wide topics, uh, maybe someone who kind of did the physics beat. But now there's people who really focus in on something hyper specific. And that's kind of cool to see, too. Yeah, I, I think it's really great. Um, the flexibility that a blog provides in terms of topic and in terms of style. I mean, just the tone that you can take in a blog that you never would get published, let's say, by the New York Times. Even, you know, there's there's a niche for that and there's a market for that. So if we're talking about people who might be interested in picking up this book, maybe interested in, in communicating science, interested in blogging, uh, what type of people or jobs or profile of a person who might be interested or good at science blogging? Anyone who cares about science and at least sort of likes to write. <laughs> so, I mean... <laughs> that does seem if, like it would be important. <laughs> if you hate, hate, hate writing, you're probably not going to enjoy science blogging. You still might benefit from it, and it still might be the right decision for you, but it's going to be a little bit tougher. Um, but as far as, you know, career path or age, all of that, I that's the great thing about a blog is that it really can be tailored to fit your needs, not the other way around. You don't have to be a particular style of writer or you don't have to always write short pieces or always write long pieces. You don't have to be, well, you don't even have to be PG-13, frankly. <laughs> I mean, there are certain blogs out there that, you know, take a tone that's clearly a very adult and meant for adults. So, I mean, it's, it's really wonderful in that sense that you can build what you want into a blog. So is science blogging uh, as something that you would do full time still a viable career option? It seems like there are some people who can make that work as a full time gig. Um, but then there's a lot of people who it looks like maybe they do it part time or maybe they do it just because they love to do it. I think that it's it's possible to create a career out of blogging, but it's much better utilized as a supplementary income or a supplement to whatever else you're doing. So for example, for scientists, it could be a really great outreach tool that's going to allow them to communicate their science to a wider audience than they could with just their journal articles. Or to a press officer, um, maybe it's getting their the research for that they're sharing from their university or from their uh, institute out there in a different and more exciting media format. I'm curious, there seemed to be like a big heyday of lots of science blogs starting up. Is Are there still a lot of science blogs getting going or have we kind of passed like peak science blog? Oh, I don't think we've passed the peak. I think there, there are a lot of new science blogs all the time and a lot of new science blog writers that are sort of picking up as older science blog writers are starting to cast their prime, perhaps. <laughs> I, I mean, I think a lot of the people who originally wrote science blogs um, are, have either moved into other forms of writing or have, you know, put the blog sort of in the back burner or to the side. And so I think we're seeing a lot of opportunity for young, new science bloggers to, to step in and, and start adding to the mix. 
one thing that we really want to make clear is that we're really thankful to our funders. Um, the National Association of Science Writers and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation gave us the money to be able to pay our writers in this book. And that was hugely influential in making it so that we could actually make this book happen. It's interesting. There's a conversation going on online right now as we're talking about how do we pay for science journalism or how do we pay for just journalism in general? Because it does seem like that's something that uh, there is uh, both a reluctance to pay for as people who read things on the internet, um, but also a real need to be able to pay people uh, f- to to write this kind of great journalism that we really love to read. Yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely an important part of the conversation because as I think what's changed is is how we consume media and the fact that the internet exists and everyone's talking on the internet and using social media we've sort of changed the idea of how how we communicate it's not just you know television or newspapers or magazines where things are very pay structures are very clear so I think I think that's going to be an important part of the future conversation is sort of how do you get good journalism and good writing and good communication um, and how do you afford to have it? You guys also did a, a really great job in making sure that there was a diverse set of voices. There's a, quite a number of female uh, blog writers and journalists who participated and wrote uh, sections of your book. And also, um, there's a number of, of people who aren't white, which is great to see as well, because it's so easy for these types of guides to get really kind of pigeonholed with one type of person. Yeah, I mean, I, I really think we, we were intending to go for diversity and and. Even with what we did, I, I'm really proud of the the results we got, but I still think we could have pushed it further. We could have tried harder um, in retrospect. Diversity in any type of field is always something that's uh, really challenging because it feels like you're to some extent limited by who you know about. And quite often we tend to know about other people that look like us, which is oftentimes a big challenge. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that statement. It's it's definitely it's definitely something that we thought about and something that uh, we felt it was important to include. I mean, we have an entire chapter dedicated to that at blogging for sort of minority audiences for that reason, because we do believe that, that having more attention drawn to more diverse writers, bloggers, anything really, is the best way to start pushing back and, and making it so that people realize that diversity exists and should exist in all fields. And you guys don't just uh, cover the kind of positive, encouraging side of blogging. You also take a look at the, let's call it the dark side of blogging. There is a chapter in the book about the reality of trolls and how to deal with them. There's also some fairly candid conversation about what it's like sometimes to be a woman science blogger and and how that's different from if you're a guy. We believe that that science blogging is an incredible tool, but we also understand that it's not all sunshine and roses. I mean, personally, I've had many abusive comments and and Twitter followers, people harassing me online because I'm a writer and because I'm a woman writing online about science and things that may conflict with some belief they held. So I I think it was really important for us not to sugarcoat it and not to make it seem like like blogging is always an amazing thing all the time for everyone. It is sometimes tricky uh, because you, like you say, you don't want to sugarcoat something, but you also don't 
don't want to deter people from doing something that they could really enjoy and be really good at. Exactly. And I think the way we went about it is that we were trying to show what it's really like to blog. And hopefully that'll encourage people to start and to try it. And if it doesn't work for them, then it doesn't work for them. And they can find some other way of getting their voice out there. So if you're a fan of science blogs and know all of those old mainstays, the ones that have been around, quote unquote, forever, um, are there some younger bloggers or some new bloggers that maybe we haven't heard about, but that we might want to keep our eye on? Yeah, I mean, there definitely are a lot of young student bloggers. And uh, one of my favorites is the student blog for uh, the Public Library of Science Blogs Network. And that showcases all sorts of new young upstarts <laughs> who are out there talking about their science and what they're doing and, and important topics to them. So uh, leaving aside the science blogging book, uh, which you were one of the editors for, but you've also got your own pop science book coming out soon, correct? I do indeed. Venomous. Please tell us a little bit about this book. Um, well, Venomous is sort of my ode to all of the animals on this planet that can do us minor to extreme harm. <laughs> um, I, I personally have just been fascinated with venomous animals for a very long time. I, I think they're really, really interesting. I've always been the kind of person who likes snakes and spiders versus running and screaming from them. Uh, and for my PhD, I studied lionfish, which are a venomous fish. And now I work with jellyfish, which are, of course, wonderfully venomous in certain ways, as I found out just a couple weeks ago <laughs> when I was selecting <laughs> one of them. Lovely. Um, but yeah, this book actually, I mean, to connect unintentionally or intentionally to my other one, this book actually came about because I was a blogger and I was approached by a book agent who said, basically, you write amazing stuff. I think it would translate well in a book. Would you be interested in writing a book? And I'd be interested in pitching it to people. And so we sort of talked about what my passions were and, and Venoms just seemed like the obvious topic because I, I think they're so fascinating. Well, I am very much uh, looking forward to reading that book and I do come back when it's out so that we can talk to you more in depth about it. It sounds great. It's hopefully I will. That would be wonderful. If you want to learn more about Christy Wilcox or the new book Science Blogging, The Essential Guide, or her upcoming new book about animal venom, uh, we have links to get you started, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.